Hello, welcome to this podcast again. My name is Marike de Witte. I'm a clinical psychologist, sexologist. I'm uh, working at Maastricht University, doing a lot of research on sexuality and also teach on sexuality. And today we're going to talk about sexual problems. Um, sexual problems are actually quite common among people. About 90% of men and women indicate that they have experienced a sexual problem once in their life. Uh, let's say about 15% of men and 20% of men and women actually feel distressed about it. But only 10 to 20% of people will actually seek help for it. So it, it seems that sexual problems are common also among young people, but there's still a, sh- a taboo, a, a shame to talk about it. People don't dare to talk about it don't dare to ask help, don't know where to find help. So I think it's really important that we address this uh, topic today. And I'm going to do this with two students. Um, Maybe you can introduce yourself. Thank you. Yes. Uh, My name is Fabian. I was here before on the second episode on relationships. I'm a master's student at UM and also a member of the student council, FPN. Yeah. So hello, my name is Lina. I'm also a master's student at FPN, currently specializing in legal psychology and also a member of the student council. Okay, welcome. Looking forward to talk about sexual problems uh, with Likewise. both of you. Yeah. So as I said, it's quite prevalent, uh, the sexual problems. Uh, it's, it's also among young people quite common. Um, uh, and, and, and I think it's important that we make this distinction between sexual problems and sexual dysfunctions, um, because sexual problems is when you do not experience sexually what you would like to experience or what you could experience that, that everything is working, everything is okay, but you feel like I'm missing something more like a concern. Well, a sexual dysfunction is really when there is, uh, the sexual response is disturbed. There's an issue with desire or arousal or, uh, problems with orgasm or pain, and you feel distressed about it. And that is really crucial, feeling distressed. Uh, because if you have, for example, you, you cannot reach orgasm or you have uh, low sexual desire, but you don't feel distressed about it, then it's actually not a sexual dysfunction. So I think it's really important to make, uh, make that distinction between problems and, and dysfunctions and always ask people like, do you feel distressed and do you want to have help? Do you want to um, seek help for the problem? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, if you don't experience any issue, why do something about it? But uh, th- th- that makes a lot of sense. And also to link that back to the prevalences that you mentioned in the beginning. So when we're talking about sexual problems, that's the 90 percent. So that's quite yeah. a, quite a high number. Yeah. But that doesn't mean a DSM, you know, criteria type exactly. Uh, disorder. Exactly. Yeah. Because, I mean, it, it's quite normal to experience a sexual problem once in your life in the sense that there might be periods in your life that you have a lot on your mind, that it's very stressful to combine work and household and whatever, and that it might be like a few months, a few years that desire is low or that you didn't really feel into sort of yeah, uh, mm. sex. It, it does not necessarily need to be a problem. Uh, you do not necessarily feel distressed about it. But if you feel distressed, of course, you can you can do something with it. It's not like, okay, well, it's a normal phase in my life. I just have to wait and, and, and pass by. No, obviously, you can actually do something, uh, even when it's one year, two years. But it does not necessarily need to be like a sexual dysfunction that 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 requires help it really depends indeed in, on whether you are distressed but if we really look at the dysfunctions still prevalences are quite high it's about 20 uh, percent of women experiencing sexual problems that's one in five um, so i think we really need to pay more attention to it and really uh, make sure that people understand what sexual problems are what the most 
common sexual problems are. And what is really important at, is that there is a solution, that there is a treatment for it, and, yeah. and that people know where to mm -hmm. seek this this help for sexual problems. Yeah. And is there like a prevalence for male sexual dysfunction? You mentioned like just the, for women, it's about 20%. Yeah, you said? And in, in men, it will be about 15%. But mm -hmm. in a sense, I don't like to really pick point prevalence numbers mm -hmm. exactly, because it also really depends on where you're uh, Your, your sample, for example. I mean, there are different prevalence studies in the United States, in the UK, the Netherlands, Belgium. Yeah. And okay, there will be more or less the same. There are not that many differences. Of course, there might be more differences when it comes to Western cultures and, 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 and non-Western cultures, but we're going to address that in, a, in another episode. But it also depends on which group. And I mean, age group also, like erectile dysfunction. Of course, mm. there's a difference in prevalence when you look at erectile dysfunction beneath the age of under the age of 40 or 50 and then above the age of 60. I mean, there will be a huge difference in erectile dysfunction. So that's why prevalence numbers are not really absolute. It also depends mm. on the sample. For example, if you're looking in a hospital setting, then mm. genital pain, for example, will be more prevalent in women. But if you look at the general population, it's more about low sexual desire. So I think it's it's a little, little difficult to give absolute prevalence numbers. I think the most important thing is that it's very common yeah. and that 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 people realize that that uh, that they just raise awareness about the fact that sexual problems are there and that you can do something about it totally yeah. agreed yeah i mean if you uh, think of other sexual uh, other psychiatric disorders uh, the prevalences are much lower um, but still everyone talks about exactly. for example mdd and and what treatments there are and exactly so on so that uh, that's yeah, you can still see bit. the taboo and the shame about uh, when people have sexual problems mm. i don't know if, if you uh, with students also talk about it i mean i know a lot of young people have sexual problems but do you dare to talk with your peers about the fact that you have a problem there's also a lot of macho behavior Let, when it comes to sex let's put it that way i think you i think you do most people do with with very specific friends they trust and when you do then it definitely feels like wow this is opening up yeah a lot yeah. so uh, so yeah so you, yeah it can really right. help yeah. it can really help yeah. if you can sort of really take the mm. step to talk about it with your peers and to know i'm not alone because everyone is experiencing these uh, These issues. Yeah. But I also think that maybe we're like a biased sample here because I mean, we're here to talk about, yeah. you know, yeah. like sexual dysfunctions in a podcast with you. So I still feel like there's probably a lot of like stigma out there and yeah. not all the, you know, like young people out there dare to talk about these things, which yeah. is why I think it's very important to, uh, yeah, like to spread awareness this, yeah. here and actually address this. And it, yeah, to just create an environment where it's okay to to yeah. talk about these things yeah. and it's like not associated with shame or, you know, like, oh, you're weird. Like, why exactly. would you experience in something like that? That's not normal. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think it's what you say. It's, it's also about informing because sometimes people may experience issues with their sexuality but don't really know how to label it or don't, don't know how to look for information. So I think it's good that we also sort of kind of inform and just label the different sexual problems. Sure. And I mean, if you say there is a huge stigma, people don't talk about it. What happens when you don't talk about it is there's going to be myths. There's going to be yeah. misstated uh, ideas of, of norms. Uh, what's normal? Is it normal that I always get an erection? Exactly. Is it normal that I always feel like having sex? Um, It's one of the, the, the yeah. biggest uh, causes of, of sexual problem is sexual myths and ideas and, and things people read in magazines mm. or read on the internet. There's so much stigma. And I think it's really important if we think about causes 
of sexual dysfunctions that we always take this biopsychosocial perspective. And so the social part is indeed the, 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 the culture, the, the messages we get. Also, religion can have an impact. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, if you we know that more conservative attitudes can raise sexual problems, because if you don't learn to explore and experiment with sexuality in a stepwise way, then this might increase the risk of experiencing sexual problems when you have sex for the first time, for example, on your wedding night. So social issues play a role, but also relationship factors. Maybe there are power dynamics or conflict. And then it also comes to a obviously the biological issues. I mean, sex and body, it, it's about hormones, uh, cardiovascular problems, neurological problems can all interfere and psychological issues. Mm -hmm. And then I think mainly about failure, anxiety, performance demand, uh, spectatoring, monitoring too much. So this biopsychosocial perspective is really important when we think about sexuality. And, and so that's why also in treatment, we need to target the different factors. Yeah, that's important. You were talking about treatment and you said because immediately I made a, a little bit of a link. So you said around 90% have a lifetime prevalence of, of, of you know, occurrence of sexual problems. Only 10% or so 10 to 20%, 10 to 20% seek, help, yeah. seek help. But those are definitely also not, you know, that's not the, the, the 10 to 20% who perceive sexual real dysfunctions, uh, disorders. So, so yeah. exactly. You, what, what, what we do see that of the people who seek help, um, what we often see is obviously the erectile dysfunction and genital pain. Often mm -hmm. when people seek help, they go for a medical uh, consultation. Because be they perceive a physical need for... Exactly. Uh, for, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. And and it also is because often people, they are a little bit afraid to talk about sex. So mm. they think, let's say, well, let's go to the doctor and let's go for a quick fix. Let's go for medication. Oh, I have mm. an erectile dysfunction. So, oh, there's Viagra. I just go to the doctor. They prescribe it to me. I just take it and it's solved. But obviously it doesn't work like that. And I think that's a little bit the problem that if you seek for a medical solution, it's a very symptomatic treatment. And always, like I said, it's this interaction between biological, psychological factors. So even when there is a biological cause, there are still psychological factors that will play a role in maintenance and exacerbation of the problems. Because even when you have a, a physical cause of erectile dis disorder, there's still performance anxiety, there's failure anxiety. So even when you take this pill, you have this idea of this, oh, it's an artifi artificial sense of it's intimacy. It's not me doing that. It's not me doing yeah. that. So it also causes problems. Yeah. And we know that about 50% of people stop taking medication within one year. Uh, so there's a large dropout. And that's not a good thing. No, it's not a not good Not necessarily. Thing. So yeah. when I understand you correctly, you're saying when it works and you regain your confidence, you gain your trust yeah. and it, it, you know, happens to work out magically, automatically, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let's put it that way, then of course you can cessate medication and, and these kinds of treatments, well, but when it doesn't, that's, that's a negative sign. Yeah. It, it also, it depends on, 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 on the cause. I mean, when there's a physical cause and you really yeah. need the Viagra because otherwise it doesn't work anymore. Yeah. Then obviously it's important that you continue taking it. So I think it's really important that, that we address this fact of, yeah, people going to the doctor and there's also really a big responsibility in the medical doctor, um, or the, the, the healthcare professional, um, how they address this problem. Because mm -hmm. if you go to the doctor, you ask a prescription for Viagra, they just give it without any explanation. Yeah. Then obviously people People are not really yeah inclined to talk about sexuality mm. and often we, what we do know is that patients don't start to talk about it spontaneously they don't mm. will come up with the topic themselves so it's really about the gynecologist urologist uh, general practitioner to proactively start talking about sex so that 
patients feel, okay, this is a team that I can discuss with my doctor, there's security, this is safe enough, I can, I, I can sort of open myself. And I think that's really important. And the problem a little bit is like in a lot of medical uh, educational programs, they're not well trained to talk about sexuality. They lack mm. skills, they lack, lack knowledge about sex. They feel like, oh, when there's going to be a sexual problem, uh, what do I have to do? Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know how to talk about it. So to just kind of avoid it. And so that's kind of this vicious circle. Why I think that, that there are even more sexual problems than we know um, because, yeah, people don't spontaneously talk about it. Yeah. yeah, that's quite surprising, like, especially, I'd say, in the, like, the doctors, you know, like, you would, or I would have assumed that the stigma, like, the social stigma doesn't necessarily latch onto that group specifically, since for them it's, like, so much even more important to actually, you know, address these issues, especially since it often, you know, like you mentioned, that it has, like, a It can have like a bio biological cause, but then yeah. again, of course, the psychological side of it is always there and always present and also needs to be tackled. So, yeah, that's quite... Uh um, exactly. They have a, a, a large responsibility. They're mm -hmm. often the first person that people go to when there is a sexual problem. So at least that they make a nice referral, even if they feel like, oh, I'm not really confident to talk about it. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, that can be. We still have to work on education so that people learn mm -hmm. to become more comfortable talking about it. But at least make a good referral to a sexologist yeah. who can address the problem. I think that is important. Yeah. 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 And that ties into what I wanted to ask. So what can you expect from a medical professional when you go and seek for help? So I, I do understand most people go to a gynecologist or urologist at first, and that's maybe not the best and perfect place to start. Yeah. But what if you do, what can you expect? I think it depends on which doctor. It depends on yeah. how comfortable they are with uh, talking about sex. I mean, there are a lot of gynecologists and urologists who, who will do a very good job and will sort of tackle. Because sometimes it's also about giving the permission to talk about sex is the first step. It's like that people know this is a theme I can discuss just to sort of, okay, mm. I took this first step. And then it's about giving limited information, some suggestions. And, and some doctors can already do that. Give some sort of, yeah, psychoeducation about how sexual problems work, little things they can try out at home but when that doesn't work then you can go for intensive ter therapy then you can go mm -hmm. to sexologists but there's a lot that medical doctors already can do not everyone with a sexual dysfunction needs to go to sexologists i mean there are different steps and i think yeah it, it really depends on which doctor but at least it's like i said when doctors are not comfortable they should at least take the responsibility to refer patients to someone who is more comfortable to talk about sexual problems yeah, yeah. so, so is, that, is that then actually like happening like uh, these it seems like there's an with the biopsychosocial like uh, approach you need to like sort of like work together with different professions yeah. so is that like working that's out that's what or? we strive for we try yeah. to work as much as possible in multidisciplinary teams this means that when you uh, for example when a patient comes to do the sexologist you will automatically check whether they already went to a gynecologist or urologist when they didn't mm -hmm. you refer yeah. or when they go to gynecologists uh, gynecologists will say well start talking with a, a, a sex counselor or a sexologist as well. So I think it's really important that we work in these multidisciplinary teams. Mm. And also for a lot of sexual dysfunctions, we really need the different angles. And uh, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, on genital pain. But maybe we can now dig into these sexual problems and then yeah. we sort of discuss what the most common sexual yes. problem is. So because then we can sort of integrate all this information on treatment. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking the same because you said there's first of all, physical and psychological causes, but that 
does it pertain to basically all types of sexual problems or only specific ones? Well, uh, let's say every sexual problem can be caused by a biological right. or a psychological or relationship. We do see that, for example, um, desire problems are, are, are less biologically caused. Of course, yeah. it can have to do with hormones. If you have low testosterone, that can have an effect. But mainly when we look at, 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 at sexual desire problems, especially in women, we don't make a distinction between a sexual desire uh, disorder and a sexual arousal disorder. So we call it a sexual interest and arousal disorder. And this is because desire is often the result of beginning arousal. I have explained this in a previous episode that your body automatically reacts to genital stimuli. And the moment you become aware of these bodily signals, you will further process the sexual stimulus, you give meaning to it. And when you expect something positive to happen, then you get the desire to do something with it. So uh, you get desire by doing it. Mm -hmm. And so often, so when there is a problem with sexual arousal then there's a problem with desire and vice versa so that's why in women we don't make this distinction because they often coincide in men we do make a distinction between arousal and desire problems because often erectile dysfunctions can be caused by purely biological issues after prostate mm. cancer thinking uh, also like blood circulation exactly right? cardiovascular problems yeah. diabetes and uh, we know uh, that the penis is full of blood vessels so whenever you have issues with blood vessels then you will have erectile dysfunction mm. so it can be that you have this arousal disorder but still have a strong desire to have sex so that's why in men we still make this distinction between desire and arousal disorders yeah and i, I do want to go further into uh, the sexual arousal interest disorder but just maybe as a practical guide for for the listeners how can you distinguish whether it's a physical or a psychological cause for example now in in erectile dysfunction well in erectile dysfunction is actually the most easy way to distinguish yeah. in the sense that if you still have a morning erection then we know it's more or less psychological because it seems that okay. the, the physical system still works. Still works, not at all times. Though. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we have that um, men have about four to five times during the night this spontaneous erection. Women have this as well, but we often don't talk about it. But we also have a wet vagina. And so you, 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 you wake up with a morning erection. So when this is still possible or when you have an erection during masturbation, then it means that it's physically okay. And that's often what we see with people with, with erectile dysfunction, that they can still masturbate, that they still have a morning erection, but that they lose their erection the moment they want to penetrate with their partner. And so that's an indication, okay, there's a psychological issue playing around. Eh? Um, so that's indeed. But for the rest, I think for a lot of sexual dysfunctions, we always screen for biological issues. I mean, I think it's important. We just need to be sure to understand. On the, on the other hand, it's not that we need the cause to determine the treatment. Uh, because it's not okay, it's a biological cause, so it's a biological treatment and it's a psychological cause, psychological treatment. Again, I think we really can sort of um, work with both. Um, yeah, but, but let's, let's, let's go to the, the, the um, sexual interest and arousal disorder. Um, so what we know is, okay, desire by doing it. So this means that one of the most important steps, what we say to people as well, sexual desire does not pop up spontaneously. You have to make the effort, you have to create the opportunities to have sex and we have addresses in a previous episode on mm -hmm. planning sex yeah. and um, I, I, the 10 minute rule right the 10 minute yeah. rule exactly <laughs> giving the well. chance yeah giving your so never ask yourself the question do i have the desire to have sex it's more about am i motivated to open myself so make sure that there is a sexual stimulus and of course make sure that it's a sexual stimulus you like and so if you don't expect something pleasurable to happen, then obviously you will not open yourself for sex. So it's also in terms of sexual desire, it's about the motivation to open yourself, creating the opportunity, mm. but it's obviously also working on sexual stimulation. So making sure that it's 
desirable to have sex. I think that's that's important um, uh, when it comes to desire disorders. What I do want to note is that we have this tendency to consider sexual desire problems as individual problems. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we take the, 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 the high desire partner as the mm -hmm. benchmark, and then the low desire partner is the one with... Who has a problem. Who has a problem. problem this is, yeah. we pathologize it. Mm -hmm. But in a way, so this is also what, what happens in therapy. Okay, the one partner is here, the other one is here. And so they expect, okay, in therapy, we will make sure that this partner goes to my level, to the highest level of desire. Yeah. But in a way, it's about meeting each other halfway. So if you have higher desire, okay, try to deal with it, masturbate, whatever. So you have to take a step back. And then when you have low desire, it's really about, okay, how can I increase my sexual desire mm. and that it's really important so it's about there's more like a mismatch in sexual desire it's a discrepancy in sexual desire so in a way you could see it more like a couple problem yeah yeah when do you actually like start making that distinction like uh, saying that someone has an individual problem to you know on, and when like can you say yeah. okay actually both you know like partners have to work on this in order to yeah yeah make this step to like compromise yeah uh, good question i think it's the first question we always ask when somebody says i have low sexual desire then i mm -hmm. want to know okay what is low and sexual desire for what because it can be it was lower than it used to be and i miss it Mm -hmm. Or it's maybe it's lower than my partner and I want other things. Because it's not only about differences in the level of sexual desire. Mm -hmm. It's also often in what do you desire? That you just desire different things. That, that the way you're having sex, maybe you, you had sex for, for 20 years in a certain way and it worked for 20 years, but now it doesn't work anymore. You kind of want something else um, or, or you just yeah want to try out other things and that's also important that it's not only about the level but also what you desire that can be a discrepancy and specifically in that i think lies already the the, the key that is consent and some barriers being something where you can compromise and yeah. some being complete you know exactly. being sort of concrete barriers and it doesn't make sense to compromise there's just a, a complete mismatch in interest and that's also not the end right no. i mean something extremely important is to accept differences in relationships exactly. in general. Exactly. I think that's really important what you're addressing. The first thing is obviously when we see there's a discrepancy in what people want, we discuss, okay, what do you want? What do you want? You can re really make it concrete, like writing a wish list that you make very concrete suggestions or you we, you can play around a little bit that you have your wishes on cards and you put it in a box and then you take a card uh, and, and, and you discuss, okay, what do you want? Okay, you can discuss it, but it doesn't mean that you need to do it. I mean, you have to respect your own boundaries and expect yeah. the other one's boundaries. And as long as you don't know, do not feel distressed and you do not um, hurt yourself and others, it's okay. But it's about discussing. And in a, often you can find kind of a compromise. Okay, like you want more rough sex and anal sex and you want more like a massage. Okay, one time we do it like this, one time we do it like that. But sometimes it's difficult. I remember a couple once who had like one partner had uh, SM fantasies and the other one preferred like the vanilla sex. And so they tried to compromise in the sense that she tried a little bit the bondage and, and, and tried to integrate some of these uh, dominance elements. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, she felt like no this is not me this not is doing I, it for me yeah, yeah. I, I, it, it's not mm. working for me i feel like i'm forced into it and it became a really team and and there was a lot of pressure and he stopped taking initiative because he felt he felt frustrated it's like oh i always have to do it like you and you do not respect my asm wishes so at a certain point we just 
yeah, talked a little bit and they agreed on an open relationship in the sense that mm. he could have like sex with a master, like masters uh, once in a month and then they could still continue to have the vanilla sex. And if you make good agreements, that is okay. I don't say that everyone who has a discrepancy in sexual desire suddenly needs to have an open relationship, mm. but at least you need to be open to see is it possible to compromise and look for a pragmatic solution that works for both of you so that you're not frustrated Can you really sort of can act on your sexual desires. Yeah, and really like also communicate with your partner. Like I feel like a lot of things that you mentioned just now are really about like openly discussing these things and really saying, okay, I really want this. Yeah. And you really want that. So just like really also expressing your yeah wishes, wish list, exactly. whatever. Um, yeah. So yeah, that uh, seems like very crucial to have that uh, kind of communication. Yeah, I think communication is key. I, I, I think we talk about it during every episode. Communication, <laughs> communication, communication. Yeah. It, it's so important. Yeah. And for something so, say, interpersonally relevant and, and you know, a dynamic of, of a relationship as sexual arousal, I think that's also super intuitive. But that probably also holds true for things that are considered more physiological causes of sexual problems, right? For we talk about genital pain or vaginism. Yeah. I mean, that's also something that's not an individual problem. It is communication is key. It's talking to your partner and and making that a, a common interest to, to work it out. Exactly. I think when we address genital pain, it's clearly also a couple problem. We tend to focus on, okay, the woman has pain, so she has a problem. But how is it for him? I mean... Engaging in sex with your partner, you're causing pain. Uh, you feel like, uh, how is it like to have sex with somebody that you know you're hurt? Do you know that she's in pain? Maybe she's not expressing it. Mm. Uh, how do you react when, when she's in pain? So there's a lot of issues and also how the partner reacts. Will he be angry or not? Because that will also determine if you have a partner who is very hostile and negative. Maybe you then sort of cross your boundaries and just say, okay, I'm just uh, go ahead and, and have sex because I don't want him to be angry. Or if you have a very comfortable uh, partner sort of who, who sort of um, that, that makes you stop having sex and, 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 and stop um, experiencing these painful experiences. Mm. But let's let's go to this genital pain. Eh? We call it genital pain, yeah. pelvic pain penetration disorder. I, I always call it genital pain. There used to be a distinction between dyspareunia and vaginismus. And mm -hmm. I think it's interesting to, to uh, indicate this because um, it used to be that dyspareunia is more about you can still engage in sexuality and in penetration, but it hurts. Vaginismus means that you're so much tight that penetration is not possible anymore. But often we see that the one... Uh, results in the other. So that's why we kind of merged these two categories into one, into the genital pain uh, um, disorder. Uh, but you can still hear a lot of these different subtypes of, of, of genital pain eh? about, okay, is it still possible to penetrate or not? That really makes a difference. So we were talking about genital pain eh? as a couple problem. And I think it's important to address this because it's a, it's a very common um, sexual dysfunction in women. And we often make this distinction between dyspareunia and vaginismus. Uh, dyspareunia means that uh, penetration is still possible, but it hurts. And vaginismus means that penetration is not possible anymore because you're, you're squeezing your pelvic floor so much. Um, but because often the one results into the other, that's why they kind of merged it into one category, the genital pelvic pain penetration disorder, which I label as genital pain. But both have to do with the pelvic floor. And it's about really uh, tightening the pelvic floor too much. And that's why it, it really hurts. And, and I think that's uh, important that in both dysfunctions, it actually has to do with fear. Because you had 
-hmm. painful experiences one or you expect that it will be painful mm -hmm. so you're anxious and what happens is then you squeeze your pelvic floor you lose your lubrication you lose your sexual arousal so then you have actually like a dry vagina that is narrow so the moment you penetrate you cause mechanical friction mm -hmm. you cause little wounds which actually Hurt. So there's mm. women get trapped into this vicious circle of, of, of pain. And so that's why it's really important to focus on the different aspects of fear of, of squeezing your pelvic floor and, and, and working on sexual arousal, because these are the key ingredients which actually lead to genital pain. Yeah. yeah. And, and I can really imagine that also just your effect um, is a is a large contributor to that because i guess the pelvic floor is controlled by the aut autonomous nervous system and and thereby if you're stressed uh exactly you know whether it be linked to sex specifically or not i guess that can have a contribution it can have an effect yeah. and we know that stress and, and negative emotions that we have this tendency to squeeze the pelvic floor and what we also sometimes see in women who are very perfectionist and 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 sort of very in control they actually um squeeze their pelvic floor during the day they often are not aware of it they constantly do it we call it like pelvic floor hypertonosity mm. and at a certain mm -hmm. point when you're constantly squeezing you cannot relax anymore and that's why sex becomes difficult but often also they have issues with going to the toilet because obviously when you want to pee you also have to relax your pelvic floor so they have a lot of bladder infections or obstipation these are all signals that indicate okay there's something with the pelvic floor so this fear is really important uh, negative emotion stress but when you think about it it's not only when you have experienced pain it's also the prospect the thinking of pain and then we have to think about the messages we give to young girls saying well the first time it's going to hurt it's Oof, going to bleed yeah. it's going to be painful mm. so at that point you actually already start with a lot of fear so obviously you squeeze and it will hurt so it's kind of a vicious circle it's really important to give positive messages about sex and about sexual pleasure enjoy mm. it and and th that's crucial yeah mm. does like genital pain then always have that like psychological component like is that usually always the cause like did i understand no, that right or not necessarily no? there are often uh, there, there can be biological causes okay. uh, causing pain um but uh what we do see that even when there is a biological cause these psychological mechanisms of fear will mm. take over and will sort of determine Maintain whether it. it becomes a chronic problem or not because you can have like an acute pain experience or because of a bladder infection or a certain reaction that you have this pain once mm -hmm. but whether or not it will continue into a chronic pain condition depends on this catastrophizing this focusing on on, on the pain this 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 fearful coping. response it's mm -hmm. coping yeah. yeah and i think that's really important to to, to consider that it's again this biopsychosocial uh, perspective mm. on pain And going back to the central theme that we always go back to, coping also not as an individual component, but as a couple component. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's really like a couple problem. I think it's really important if we work with genital pain that we treat the couple and that you can sort of help to deal with, with the problem and, and, and see how you can sort of solve the, the, the genital pain. Because one of the, the things that is most important, obviously pelvic floor physiotherapy, that's mm. why again, medical treatments are important. It's mm. about learning to relax your pelvic floor, mm. but it's also about looking for sexual stimulation so that you expect something fun to happen mm. instead of pain. And what is crucial is stop doing things that hurt. 
uh, we do we, we call it a pain stop is because if you continue with having sex despite the pain uh, because you want to please your partner you're afraid that you will lose your partner what happens is that you keep on associating sex with pain with negative mm. emotions so you need to sort of decouple this association and learn to associate sex with something positive again so this means looking for sexual stimulation that you like and stopping stop doing things that hurt and often when i say to people well there's a pain stop then it's like for how long yeah you need to make the, the, the region rest so for a couple of mm. months then it's like can't we have sex for six months obviously you can have sex but not penetration not the things mm. that hurt and eventually step by step when you learn to relax your pelvic floor you overcome the fear you learn to arouse yourself again enjoy sexuality again then step by step you can go to penetration working with uh, inserting fingers in for inserting uh, dilators, dilators. Yeah, dilators yeah. with different mm. diameters so that you sort of step by step build to work on this penetration again but the crucial part is really about looking for sexual stimulation and relaxing your pelvic floor because in a way what i always say to people is genital pain is actually a signal that your body is not ready yet for penetration mm. you're not aroused yet so take the time to enjoy sexuality yeah I feel like when you say you're not ready yet for penetration, that obviously also ties into this context as a couple of foreplay and and really taking your time as a couple uh, with foreplay. Because as we said in an earlier episode, it, it doesn't start in the bedroom. Exactly. It starts after you had sex last time. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's your daily context. Yeah. It's being nice to each other, making sure that you're relaxed. Because obviously also when there are a lot of relationship issues, when there's a lot of conflict, then you don't relax. And then it's also more difficulties. I, I, it's like I said, also, sex is, is communication. It's about getting the right simulation, but it's also about the context, having a, a safe relationship. And I, I think that, that this relationship and partner responses will also kind of determine how women will cope with the pain. Uh, like I said, mm. some women will continue with having sex despite the pain because they want to please their partner or want to feel normal. But some yeah. women will also stop with any type of intimacy because they feel like, okay, when I start to kiss, he gets an erection. And when he gets an erection, I need to do something with it. I need to penetrate and that hurts. So they stop engaging in any type of intimacy just because they are afraid of the pain. And so that can also cause a lot of uh, tension because at a point, okay, there's not penetration, but there's like nothing anymore, not even a kiss or a hug because of this constant fear of pain. So it's really pervasive for the relationship. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. why when you work with genital pain problems, automatically you will also address a little how, how it affects the relationship, how it affects the partner and how he will yeah. react to the problem. Yeah. yeah. I think one aspect that I also hear from that, and that's, we, we didn't talk about it very specifically and it might be obvious, but telling your partner about what you feel and what you perceive uh, as sort of the first step and the most basic thing that you can you can do as a couple, right? Because when we talk about the pelvic floor, when we talk about pain, those are subjective things. They're not very visible. They're not very obvious. And, yeah. you know, that's, again, this guessing game, uh, really making sure that exactly. that there is a consensus in, in, in what, what what's happening and there's enough yeah. communication. I think that. that's yeah. why it's also so important to work with a couple in therapy so that as a, as a sexologist, you can also explain it to the partner so that he understands because yeah. often the woman is experiencing all these, these, these uh, bodily sensations or, or fear, but he doesn't understand, he doesn't know. So explaining it is also really important um, to, to sort of, yeah, have sort of a mutual agreement on, okay, this is, let's let's work on it together i think that is really important yeah now we 
address the genital pain, I think also uh, one important uh, sexual problem in women is orgasmic disorder. And mm. um, it, it, it's also very common. Uh, but I, I think we already covered a lot in, in previous episodes when we talk about masturbation and about mm. orgasm, because as we said there, a lot of orgasmic problems have to do with not getting the right stimulation. And the mm. problem a little bit is that we are still focusing often too much on male penetration. Yeah. But for women, that's often the, the least... Uh, arousing part of sex because they need clitoral stimulation eh? as we mm. said in the previous episode uh, the majority of women reaches orgasm by stimulating the clitoris uh, directly and only the minority will reach orgasm via penetration and it's also only indirect stimulation of the clitoris so if you focus only on, on penetration uh, then it might be not satisfying enough for women so that's why it's so important to, to try to work around it and, and have some variation. Use your fingers, a little vibrator. Try to, first of all, discover yourself. Like, okay, what do I need? What do I like? A lot of women don't know their preconditions for sexual arousal. Mm. So discover it yourself. And then you can sort of communicate it again to your yeah. partner. Indicate what do you want. And yes, you can use a vibrator because yeah, it's it's helpful. It it, it it's a max. It gives you a maximum mm -hmm. stimulation. So the moment you start to recognize these signals of arousal and orgasm, it will become more easier to reach orgasm also during sex with a partner. So that's why I, I mean, it obviously it's not a must. Right? It's not that every woman now has to start using a vibrator and watching porn and listening to erotic podcasts. Only if it helps. Only if it works for you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. If it helps, it's just it's out there. Try it out, and it's just a good way of discovering what you need yeah. because I think that's really important when it comes to orgasmic problems. It's about letting go of your partner, focusing on yourself. It's really this part because a lot of desire and arousal is interacting and turning each other on. But if you really want to reach this point of orgasm, you can sort of be egocentric, you yeah, focus on what you need, and you also have to let go of this like kind of script, you know, like focusing on the on the man, like the penetration part of the sex. So really just like let go of what you think sex is and really mm. just explore what you need uh, in order to yeah reach your orgasm. So I have actually one question. So I've been wondering, like, when do you actually call it like an orgasmic disorder? Like when you don't reach because, you know, like women don't, or there's this common like saying that yeah, women don't always reach the orgasm during sex. So is it... You know, like if I don't reach it once, if I don't reach it like 20 times, like when do you call well, it? It really depends on, on, again, it's a very subjective thing. I mean, mm -hmm. there are women who don't climax and don't feel distressed about it. So you could say, well, there is no problem. There's no issue. Mm. But at the same time, sometimes women say it is not important because they never experienced it. And it's kind of a cognitive dissonance. You know, they yeah. just tell themselves like, oh, well, it's not important after all. So I don't have a dysfunction. But at the same time, Obviously. there's an unmet need there's yeah. an unmet need and exactly people want to experience this physical gratification it's not mm -hmm. only about intimacy and being together um so when is it an, an orgasmic problem it, it's just how 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 distressed you feel about it like mm. i don't think that it's 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 a wise thing to strive for like an orgasm every time and that you say oh well i don't have an orgasm every time so i have an orgasmic disorder yeah. i mean it depends i mean if mm -hmm. you really want it so it, it, it yeah so it's really about the distressing it's really about 
what you want and what you experience. But I do say sometimes also when, when young people come uh, in treatment because they have like, okay, I have difficulties to reach orgasm and you're 17 years old, then it's more like, you know, take your time, learn your body. Maybe you don't know your body yet and just mm. uh, don't force it too much because if it becomes a goal in itself, then obviously it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's really also about relaxing a little bit and, yeah. and trying out different things. Getting and out of your head. Yeah. Exactly. And just see when it comes and how, how often it comes um but but it also doesn't matter when do you climax sometimes it's like oh i have an orgasmic problems when i when i don't climax during penetration with my partner why i mean yeah. <laughs> if you have like foreplay and you're doing nice things and and manual sex and oral sex and you climax but you don't climax during penetration do you have an orgasmic problem then I mean, it, it really mm. is, it's, it's about your own labeling, I think. And it's with, and sometimes it's also about ideas, expectations people yeah. have about sex. And then it's an, an, really important to tackle these expectations and lower these expectations. And what I always like to say to patients is, is, uh, is, is kind of the good enough sex model. It's mm. good enough. Sex is not always fantastic and passionate and climaxing and whatever. So often you have sex and it's like, well, it was okay. <laughs> it may not what we want to hear, but it's, uh, it's but it what, what, it what a lot of people need to hear, maybe. Yeah. It, it, it can be a problem if it's always like, okay and good enough. I mean, yeah. obviously you want to strive for these peaks yeah. and this <laughs> exciting sex, but it cannot be like that every time. And sometimes we see that people uh, result in sexual inactivity because having these high expectations about sex. So it's really also normalizing. Good enough yeah. is good enough. Yeah. So what about the, the male counterpart of like... Yeah, it's ex exactly. We're actually talking a lot about women. That's if women no, are like that's that. Good. But, you know. yeah, yeah. I think obviously there are male sexual dysfunctions as well. Uh, we talked about the desire problems in women. Mm. Yeah, there are also men with, with low sexual desire. Um, the same principles apply as in women. And that's, that's something I was actually wondering because that, that sounds a, a bit more out of the ordinary. And it might not be. So I'm wondering, is it actually more common that women have low sexual desire or is is it just as likely in men or just as prevalent in well, men? Well, in general, it's the low sexual desire is more prevalent in women than in men in the sense mm -hmm. that it's the most prevalent sexual dysfunction mm -hmm. in women. In men, it's more about erectile dysfunction. Mm. But what we do see in men, that is the prevalence of low desire is increasing, especially also in young men. Uh, and I think it's just because we have so much on our mind. There's a lot of pressure. Uh, low desire often has to do with the fact that you don't have the mental resources to sort of process a sexual stimuli because you're involved in so many things there's so many pressure and work and school and having a great body and cooking and being the perfect <laughs> father and and mm. just that's a little bit the thing and the problem is that with low sexual desire in men there's this stigma and social perspective because a man always wants sex right of course yes. men yeah. always take the initiative that's so, manly <laughs> exactly it's about malehood yeah. and what we clearly yeah. see is that often men feel distressed about the sexual desire problem and also the partner because they feel there's something wrong with yeah, me. Yeah. He doesn't want me. I'm mm. not attractive enough. And that's that's the classic case that we have in so many basically uh, psychological topics. It's internalizing attributions versus externalizing. And so exactly. partners tend to internalize that as a as thinking, oh, this has to be to do with yeah. me in instead of considering the whole context and maybe thinking, oh, well, maybe I'm only one part of this whole big exactly. situation we're in. Yeah. Exactly. And that's, again, this couple perspective that is important because Talking if you about have a, a desire problem, it mm. also has an effect on the partner because they start to have attribution. Is there something wrong with the relationship with myself, which causes the stress? Yeah. Mm. So I think 
low sexual desire is prevalent in men. What we also see what is more prevalent is hypersexuality, high sexual desire, but we have addressed this in a previous episode mm -hmm. in which it's not a clear official uh, DSM diagnosis yet, but it's also not really about sex. It's more using sex as emotion regulation. It's yeah. about having this uncontrollable urge to engage in sexuality. So, uh, but we have a, a full uh, episode it's on the that. other one. end of the spectrum. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think one of the, like I said, the most common um, problem in men is erectile dysfunction. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, it, it's about not getting an erection when you want to, or you get an erection, but you lose your erection before you want to. Right? You lose your erection, for example, before penetration. Mm. And, and as, as we already discussed in the beginning, there's like this crucial question, like, is it physical or, 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 or not? Uh, by asking about the morning erection. Um, obviously, um, there are different treatments. We have uh, what we clearly see independently of the treatment again fear and performance anxiety are crucial it's about really focusing too much on this erection like oh my god it's not going to work panicking you're in your head your partner's kissing you giving you sexual stimulation but you're not you're not paying attention to it because you're constantly focusing on this erection is it still okay am i not going to lose it and so that's mm. how men get also trapped into this vicious circle. It's about, you're like spectatoring, monitoring yourself. You're sort of looking at yourself during sex, performance amount, failure anxiety, mm. and it collapses. Not so being it's in really, the moment. Exactly. Yeah. It's really about um, just letting go this failure anxiety and just relaxing a little bit and trying to focus on your body again. It's mm. really, in, in treatment, we really have to work on this failure anxiety and performance demand and, mm. and really, yeah, um, yeah, learning so to. so what do you then like um, suggest to like clients that experience these kind of problems like how because it's always like easier said than done right like to uh, just let go you know like just exactly. don't Obviously. don't think about it because then of course you you will like think and think and think yeah. about it so what I do you suggest well, we have concrete exercises in the sense that you learn to control uh, for example that you learn not to panic when you lose your erection so for example we give the masturbation exercises so they mm. build up their erection they masturbate and then they have to let go okay, they lose their erection again, then they build up again, and then again, and they do it four times. And so they learn to control. Knowing that it works. Knowing that it works. Knowing that, okay, when I have sex and I lose my erection, I just don't panic. I just stimulate myself again. I know I can do it. And it works again so that's mm. really important what also really works is sensed focus exercises so touching each other so making taking turns like each partner uh, touches the other one for 10 minutes mm. and uh but then you just make the agreement okay there's no penetration afterwards it's really about touching each other what and arouses focusing. you yeah what arouses mm. you it's not even arousal the focus is not on looking for sexual arousal it's really about touching your body because in the first phase you will sort of leave out the genitals then you include the genitals and then you can slowly go into penetration but it's really important we have this penetration ban it's really like you can engage in everything you want but do not penetrate because otherwise this sense of focus exercise become like a foreplay again and people yeah. start to ruminate because that's often what happens when there is sexual stimulation they catastrophize and it the, the element of performance expectations. Exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly. So it's really about okay, penetration ban. You cannot penetrate. Often people then do it because mm -hmm. that's the paradox. Eh? But still, <laughs> it's really about um, don't panic and and just relax and just yeah, feel what you feel. Mindfulness, for example, could also be very helpful to mm -hmm. sort of 
let go of distracting thoughts and focus on your body again. I mean, so much of this, uh, for, for some reason, in, kind of reminds me of meditation, yeah. right? We, we talked about orgasms in, in women and erection in men, and it's always this uh, spectating yourself. And, and the moment it works out, you're like, oh, it works, it works, it works. And then, of course, the same as in meditation, you think, oh, it works, and then it stops working. Exactly. And learning to, to be in the moment yeah. without... Uh, Having having this this forceful grip on it exactly yeah. exactly yeah. and it's really about just being in the moment and not striving towards an aim like I want to feel arousal I want mm. to climax it's really about okay just feel what you feel kind yeah. of this bodies can uh, experience uh, it's really important yeah all right but we are talking about erectile dysfunction and we said already before psychological causes are a big factor but there's also yeah physiological causes and of course i mean some some men then have erectile dysfunction they think i have the power to change it but they actually don't no no no. how do you no it's clearly when there's a biological cause there's a biological cause i mean there are a lot of uh, like like we talked about cardiovascular uh, diseases also Mm. when men grow older at a certain point you will reach this point of erectile dysfunction so of course there are medical treatments i think important is of course uh, the viagra mm. cialis is a better option so we actually prefer cialis because it has uh, less uh, side effects um, but the thing is obviously also you need to take it right you need to use it right because um, if you take the pill and you're just sitting on your bed waiting for the erection to come it's not going to work so mm. you take a pill and then you have to engage in sexual stimulation fantasy masturbating doing some something with the partner that's really important and that's often what what goes wrong they go to the doctor they prescribe it with any without any uh, explanation, explanation yeah. and then it's like oh viagra doesn't work for me uh, so you can use viagra there are also uh, injections uh, so you can use an injection uh, papavarina sort of a, a, a substance that you put into the uh, squeeze into your penis um the thing is Ouch. it's it's not it's not hurtful uh, no. and you get an, an erection uh, immediately mm. so even when you're not thinking about sexuality and then there's also the penile prosthesis it's really one the moment for example uh, when when there's actually no erection possible at all after prostate mm. cancer for example there was an operation we know the nerves are damaged and then yeah. you can have this penile prosthesis um, the thing is with the penile prosthesis obviously you can also uh, choose for counseling the couple like okay penetration is not possible anymore how can you enjoy sexuality without penetration? Mm. But obviously there are couples who really focus on penetration, mm. who feel like this is really an important part of our sexual script. So there is a solution. Mm. Yeah, but also important to keep in mind the, the prosthesis is irreversible, right? Yeah, so once you have it in, yeah. cannot be taken cannot out anymore. So that's kind of the last res- resort. It's I would really think. the yeah. last resort, but yeah. it's becoming more and more popular in men nowadays. Yeah. But even then, again, you need the counseling because if you use this penile prosthesis and the, and, and the How medication... How does it work actually, by the way? Like, I actually have no idea. If I may, you know, and then you can correct me. I actually, because I watched a video on this. Um, so the swelling bodies of mm-hmm. the penis are being taken out. Yeah. To, so the blood capillaries, yeah. I don't know exactly. And, the and cavernosum, like they say, yeah. Perfect. Okay. And then uh, there is a, a basically like a, f- a tube, actually, a tube yeah. exactly that can be filled with with fluid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's also a storage tank and that's more inside of the body. And if you or it can be in the testis also or, or in the yeah. testis. And then there's a button that you can press like a small pump yeah. and you can basically pump up yeah. these cavities the in the penis yeah. the fluid, ah, okay, so, yeah. because, so it's very similar to to actually having blood flow into your yeah. penis mm-hmm. um, and the good thing is that the nerves are intact so this means that you still have the same sensation so it's really you you yeah. you, you work on the mechanical possibility to have an erection but you still feel 
um, yeah, mm. the same. It's also important to 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 realize that um, in terms of, of, of uh, nerves and, and feelings is that you can still have an, uh, an ejaculation and orgasm with uh, without an erection. And I think that a lot of men don't understand that because they think when I have an erectile problem, then I cannot enjoy All sex hope anymore. Is lost. But it's not. Yeah. You can still mm -hmm. have ejaculation. You can still reach orgasm even when your penis is not erect. So I think that's also important. That's why also in terms of counseling that the penal prothesis is the last resort. You can also try to enjoy sexuality in another way. Yeah. But also, again, counseling is important because we do know that about 50% of couples stop using the prothesis, stop using medication because of this idea that it's artificial and they still feel that, well, it's not spontaneous and I'm not a real man. So the same issues are mm. still involved. So that's why this combination treatment is important. And exactly. also for, for psychotherapy yeah. because Oh, there, even when you say, okay, it's a psychological problem, so obviously you need to sort of work on, on performance anxiety and so on. But also then medication can work because mm -hmm. if you give medication, then you know, okay, don't worry, don't stress. You know you will have an erection, so you don't have to focus on it anymore. You take mm -hmm. this pill so you can learn to enjoy yourself again. So, so that's really important. So basically unlearn like those negative things that you exactly. associate with like the Regain sexual confidence. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they really work in synergy yeah. from both sides and, and wherever you have to start, you start and you complement with the other. Exactly, nice. exactly. So we talked about erectile dysfunction. Of course, that's kind of the situation where you want and it doesn't work and you can't start. But what if you, it works too well, basically, to put it uh, simply and you have premature ejaculation. Yeah, well, premature ejaculation is, of course, one of the most common orgasmic disorders in men. Yeah. Uh, we do have men who have delayed uh, ejaculation and, and, and delayed orgasm. And that mo mostly has to do with the fact that uh, people are maybe sort of too much pressure, too much performance in men. Mm -hmm. So the same mechanisms are there that they have difficulties to reach orgasm. But the most common is indeed like too fast eh? that you yeah. have reached orgasm in minimal stimulation, like one or two minutes after penetration, or sometimes even before penetration. Now, the crucial thing there is the feeling of no control. Because often, if you, if you talk with men, they often have this idea, yeah, I come too early. Even when after five or six minutes, they come too early. Because, of course, if you watch porn and they have these uh, sessions of 20 <laughs> minutes, then if you take that as the norm. Uh, but normally, I mean, uh, um, the thing is, it's, it's about feeling no control. And, and, mm. and you have to sort of recognize this point of no return. And that's often where, where, where they fail. It's like failing to recognize this point of no return and not being mm -hmm. able to control. And they're so much focused on the stimulation, so much focused on, I cannot come, I cannot come, that mm. they actually very provide very intense stimulation so again you have this vicious mm -hmm. circle again so it's really about learning to control yourself and learning to recognize this point of no return and normally when we know that men when you let them do their thing um men know okay this is my point of no return it's almost there i don't want to come yet so what you do you switch positions you slow down a little bit you learn to control yourself and it's often there where it goes wrong so what you do in, in men with premature ejaculation is that you learn them to kind of uh, yeah recognize this point of no return by uh, building up your erection when you feel okay i'm almost there you squeeze really hard mm -hmm. squeeze really hard below the top of your penis and then it stops the ejaculation reflex and then, okay, you let go again, you build up again. Okay, this point is there, squeeze again. And then you do this four times. And then eventually you learn to sort of delay this point mm. of no return, delay this ejaculatory re reflex. So that's one way. So working on, on this stop, start and squeeze techniques. 
But we do also have a medical treatment. And, and a medical treatment, what works really good for a man with premature ejaculation is um, SSRIs, antidepressive right. medication. Ah. Because one of the side effects mm. of SSRIs is delaying orgasm. Mm -hmm. And in terms of, of premature ejaculation, it's actually a good side effect. So you just take a low dose, mm -hmm. a daily dose of SSRIs. There's also a medication, what, what is called dapoxetine. And dapoxetine is like on demand. So you can take it when you know, like Viagra, okay, we are going to have sex. So you take it and then 30 minutes later, sort of it starts to work. And right. So SSRIs, you have to take constantly. You have to constantly. take them daily, yeah. And it, mm. I mean, that kind of sounds to me like they're not doing only that. They're doing much more. But is that safe? No, it's safe because obviously if you use SSRIs for, for depressive uh, issues, then you will have like a high dose. Mm. Here we are talking about a very low dose. Right. And some men prefer that because it's less artificial in the sense if you have to plan, yeah. oh, I'm going to have sex and I take the boxing. If you take mm. SSRIs every day, then you sort of, you know, it's more or less spontaneous then. So uh, I think medication works really well. But again, it's never about this or that. It's really about and, and. And I think mm. for all the treatments, we try to strive as much as possible towards a combination of psychotherapy, counseling and, and medication. Obviously not for all uh, issues, medication is necessary, but the combination works really good. Yeah. Yeah. And you were already talking about this stop, start, squeeze. Uh, I feel like th then it's maybe not called the pelvic floor, but the, the muscles in general also play a big role yeah, and exactly. learning how to control them. Because is, that's, it, again, it such exactly a... It is exactly the pelvic floor. Oh, the that's right, also the pelvic floor. The pelvic floor. Okay. the pelvic floor plays an important role also during ejaculation and during orgasm. In men. So also in men, yeah. yeah. We often forget, we often talk about the pelvic floor in women, but men also have a pelvic floor. And there are actually first studies showing that pelvic floor physiotherapy can also help uh, for premature ejaculation and erectile uh, or other uh, orgasmic disorders. And these are these these practices that are called Kegel? Kegel uh, exercises, Kegel yeah. Exercise, yeah. It depends. Kegel exercise is really about squeezing and, 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 and then it's about um, tightening the pelvic floor. We also have the relaxation part. So it's really about the combination of tightening and relaxing mm -hmm. the pelvic right. floor. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to thank you both for this uh, really interesting um, conversation. Obviously, we didn't talk too extensively about all the sexual dysfunctions. There's much more and there are different subtypes. It's too much to cover into one episode. But I think the most important thing what we wanted to do is actually inform you, raise awareness, indicate, okay, what are the most common sexual problems and try to understand that it's nothing to feel ashamed for. It's common there to ask help, there to talk about it, because again, as we indicated so many times, communication is key to uh, to have a, a pleasurable uh, sex life. Thank you for listening and see you next time. Bye.